0: Our reading today comes from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 14, verses 1 to 24. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 1. One Sabbath, when he went to dine at the house of a ruler of the Pharisees, they were watching him carefully. And, And behold, there was a man before him who had dropsy, Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor, lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him, and he who invited you will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will begin with shame to take the lowest place." But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. He said also to the man who had invited him, when you give a dinner, Or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. When one of those who reclined at table with him heard these things, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, a man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. But they all alike "'began to make excuses. "'The first said to him, "'I have bought a field and I must go out and see it. "'Please have me excused.' "'And another said, "'I have bought five yoke of oxen and I go to examine them. "'Please have me excused.' "'And another said, "'I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come.' "'So the servant came and reported these things to his master.' Then the master of the house became angry and said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame. And the servant said, sir, what you commanded has been done and still there is room. And the master said to the servant, go out into the highways and hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. i let's go to him together in prayer. Our gracious heavenly father, we come to you today praying that you would do a work in us. Lord, our prayer is that our hearts would be set fully on your greatness and your glory, that our affections would, would be enlivened toward the things of God, that our thoughts would be transformed by the renewal of our minds, that our wills would be devoted to your will, Lord, to that which is pleasing in your sight. Lord, we give glory to you today. Lord, we thank you for planning our redemption before the foundation of the world and for bringing it to pass in the personal work of your son. Lord, we we bless you for the means of grace. Lord, we thank you for the gift of faith and repentance and that you've given us eyes to see both the necessity and the beauty of Christ that he is needful to our souls, but also that he is lovely, that he is wonderful. Lord, thank you for sustaining us with your, your gracious hand in all of our need. Lord, uh, we have an ever-present need, and you are an ever-present help your word reminds us and for this we, we give you praise. Thank you, Lord, that you work all things according to the counsel of your will. Lord, that's a, a comfort to our souls. So we think about the circumstances we find ourselves in knowing that we can rest in your sovereign hands. We can rest in your wisdom. We can rest in your goodness. We can trust in the way that you have chosen to order our steps Lord, may we indeed be men and women and boys and girls who look to you in faith in our need. Now, Lord, we pray that you would grant us grace to hear your word and to to respond with the kind of hearing that issues forth in love and in obedience to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. what can you expect when Jesus comes for dinner? Well, you shouldn't be surprised to find him graciously intruding into the lives of everyone around him, showing an interest in the souls of those present as guests, taking those on the perimeter, those that don't quite seem to fit in with everyone else, and giving them a place of prominence and care that No one else would. Drawing attention to those who have been left out entirely, those who haven't even been invited, even meddling a little bit in the affairs of the host, telling him how he ought to conduct things. This is the Lord Jesus. He may break social conventions, but he does it out of a love for souls, out of an interest in, in the souls of man. Our our passage has four main scenes. They're all centered around the table of a certain ruler of the Pharisees. And those words already tip us off to certain things. When you're just getting into a book, you don't know who the main characters are. You don't know what they're known for, what they're like, the kinds of things that they do. We're not at that place anymore in the gospel according to Luke. We're halfway through this letter. The characters have already been developed. Patterns have already been established. So when you get to chapter 14 and verse 1, and you, you hear the words Sabbath, ruler of the Pharisees, you find out that there's a man with, with dropsy, this is what we know today as edema, a, a buildup of excess fluid in the tissue of, of the body. You, you realize, in other words, that you have exactly the wrong kind of person present in this scene with uh, lawyers and, and religious leaders. Remember, Pharisees' whole concern in, in life is to make sure you live up to uh, the law, at least as they understood it. Ritual cleanliness was kind of their, their specialty. And then we learn the Pharisees are watching Jesus carefully. And they are doing so on the Sabbath as a man with dropsy stands before them. So the stage has already been set and we're already anticipating a clash before we've really got out of the gate. In fact, some have suggested that this man with dropsy may have even been a plant on the part of the Pharisees to try to catch him, to try to test him and, and, and see what he was going to do. Whatever the case, Jesus knows what's happening. Jesus is on to things. This is a passage that parallels very closely what we saw back in chapter 13 in verses 10 to 14, where there was that woman with the disabling spirit on a Sabbath day. And if you remember there, Jesus sets her free of her disability. And while the people rejoice, the ruler of the synagogue was indignant. He was incensed that Jesus would have uh, the audacity to perform a work of healing on the Sabbath day, on a day of rest. And this passage parallels that. It mirrors that passage Uh, very closely with one difference. Just a, a careful reading of the text shows here that Christ preemptively raises the issue of the lawfulness of healing on the Sabbath. It says that Jesus responded to the lawyers and the Pharisees saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But what did he respond to? There's no dialogue that precedes this. There's no question that comes before this, but this is God incarnate responding. We're talking about the Lord of heaven and earth who perceives what is going on in our inner man. The incarnate word is at work, piercing to the division of soul and spirit of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The Bible says no creature is hidden from him. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. That's every one of us here today. That's what we see here in our text. Jesus is drawing out the the inner workings of the heart and through his words and his ways, he's speaking the truth and he's doing so in love. He's lovingly provoking, lovingly provoking these Pharisees to consider whether their, their working assumptions, whether the way they live is in, in accordance with the way of God. He's prompting them to, to, to examine themselves and to measure the dictates and the rules by which they live with the heart of Christ, his purposes. We're going to, to see that theme repeated continually in this passage as they're all dining in the home of this, this Pharisee. So what do you do when there's a man with this loathsome condition and for one reason or another he stumbles his way into the home uh, of this Pharisee and the Lord Jesus is present with all his healing power, but it happens to be the Sabbath. That's the question presented in the the text by Christ himself in, in verse three. Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Now, you see the wisdom of Christ here in this text. He doesn't say, look, you dimwits, you've got it all wrong. That's not the approach that that he takes. Instead, what does he do? Well, he seeks to to bring them around to see things for themselves. He gives them a question. He he asks them, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Well, now they've got to think through things. If they answer no, they're forced to deny that their, well, for one, their willingness to rescue their own son or their ox contradicts their their stated policy. They're also forced to deny deny the word of God, which actually requires uh, you to perform works of mercy on the Sabbath day, that that's actually quite in keeping with the spirit of the day. If they say yes... Well, then they have to admit that their interpretation of the law and all of the, the the extra biblical requirements that they have put around the necks of their disciples don't comport with the will of God. And of course, behind this is the idea that the law represents something much more than a list of rules and regulations, something where... If you fall into line, if you check off all of the boxes, if you keep the letter of the law, God's happy with you. You're inside the camp, so to speak. And if you don't, if you you fall outside the lines, well, you, you, you better watch out. The problem with this, of course, and this is what is epitomized in the lives of the Pharisees is they misunderstand the heart of the law. There was another occasion where, another Pharisee came up to Jesus and he asked him a question. He says, teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? And he asked Jesus that question, not because he seerly desired to learn, not because he, he wanted to please the Lord Christ, but because he wanted to test him. Almost like you could take the word of God and you could just play trivia with it. Well, this is how Jesus answered him. This is Matthew 22 and verse 37. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets, So what does Jesus say? He says the law is about love. The law, contrary to how we often think, is about loving God. It's about loving our neighbor. Now, the first thing that ought to confront us as we think about this, the issue at hand is that none of us do that. None of us love God with all of our heart, soul, strength, and mind. None of us love our neighbor As ourself, and that's actually part of the law's ministry to our hearts. It shows us that standard of righteousness that God requires. It teaches us about God's holiness, His perfection, His righteousness, and in that way, it becomes a schoolmaster. It unfolds to to our hearts just how far short we have actually all fallen the standard God requires. And by convincing of, uh, us of that, by convincing us of our failure to uphold it, it shows us our need of a savior. It drives us to Christ. It shows us that we we cannot have right relationship with the Father unless the Lord Jesus steps in. Now, to those who have been redeemed, to those who have been a purchase the, to those who have been ransomed from the feudal ways. Uh, the Bible says we have been, we, we inherited, all of us, from our, our forefathers. Those, the law shows us how to live. It shows us how to live for God. We, we cannot earn right standing with the Father. We've, we, we, we have to be justified by Christ and His righteousness. But having been justified freely by His sacrifice, The law shows us what loving God and loving mankind looks like. And in summary terms, this is it. It means loving God with all of your being. It means loving your neighbor in the way that you love yourself. Well, you see that the Pharisees here, they they missed it in their understanding on both accounts. First, they do not understand the soaring heights of God's perfection. They do not understand the righteousness that he requires. They thought that it was actually something attainable, something that was well within their reach. And because of that, their eyes are closed to the beauty and the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Their their eyes are closed to the necessity of a savior. They don't see their need of him. They're proud people. They're proud of their performance. They're proud of their track record. And the consequence of this is they, they actually take the law and they, they diminish the scope and application of it. Brothers and sisters, if all religion requires of you is that you, you adhere to this this list of narrowly defined rules, often man-made rules, aren't they? Well, it's easy enough then to construct a system that you can measure up to, something that you can attain to. In fact, something where you can leave God out of the picture entirely. But if the standard isn't what you construct, if the standard isn't you, it it is in fact God himself. And the one true God says, be merciful even as your father is merciful. Let all that you do be done in love, let your whole life, in other words, be governed by, by the mercy and compassion and love that you see in the Lord himself as he defines it in his word, well, then we all have a long way to go. In fact, we're hopeless apart from his, his saving, transforming grace at work in our hearts. The Pharisees were not men who were governed by love, And so, when they were presented with this case that called into question their standard operating procedure, they don't know what to do. They don't know how to respond. As it pertains to the Sabbath, the Bible says, Jesus himself says, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath is about liberty. It's about release. It's about rest. The Pharisees don't understand that. And so the Bible says they remain silent. Jesus comes and he takes this this precious man and he heals him. And then he says to the Pharisees, which of you having a son or an ox that has fallen into a well on a Sabbath day will not immediately pull him out? Come on, men, give me a break here. Are you really going to, to go and stand over the well and say, hang on, son, J- just wait until the end of the day. Don't mind that, that broken leg. We'll get to you when the, when, when, when the law allows for it. Of course not. This isn't how, how you operate. And they cannot reply. They cannot reply to these things. Now, here's the real tragedy, brothers and sisters. Christ has just shown his healing power uh, before their eyes. He's demonstrate his, demonstrated his authority in his, in his exposition of the word, in his exposition of the law. He has silenced his opponents. He's, he's stopped the mouths of those who would stand against him, but nothing changes. Nothing changes. They don't submit to him. They don't submit to him as Lord of the Sabbath. They don't come and put their trust in him. They would rather cling to false religion than turn in faith in repentance. Now, in verse 7, verses 7 to 11, we turn our attention to the guests at this dinner, and Jesus addresses those who are there attending the meal. Now, here the passage is, or, or, or the lesson is, is prompted not by the Pharisees' uh, scrutiny of Christ, but Christ's observation of them. Look at verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the, pla- chose the places of honor. You see how the tables are turned. In the first act, the Pharisees are they're watching to catch Jesus in the act, watching for some breach of protocol. Now they're the ones under observation. And what do we find? They are laid bare themselves. They are the ones laid bare as law-breaking, self-serving people. And so Jesus gives them a warning. He says, when you get invited to a feast, don't go plop yourself down uh, next to the host. Don't try to elbow your way in next to the, to the guest of honor. You know what is going to happen if you do that. Someone more distinguished than you is going to come along and the host is going to have to come over to you and say, get up, uh, give your place to this person. And then what's going to, you're going to have to slink away in shame, And so what do you do? Well, when you're invited, he says, go and sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher, then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at table with you. Now, the question that I would like to put to you today is this, is Jesus simply saying to show deference to other people so you can save face in public settings? Is that all that this is, a way for you to avoid social embarrassment? Or is he uh, suggesting that you take the lowest position out of a kind of false humility, where actually you're, you're secretly strategizing internally about how you can make your way to the top? Is that what Christ is doing? No. No. Not at all. This is called a parable. See, verse seven. Now he told a parable. That's, that's an important word. The word uh, literally means that you take one thing and you, you lay it down alongside another. So Jesus is, in this case, taking one thing. In this particular case, it's the kingdom of God. And he's using something else, something that's more familiar to us, a dinner party, as, as an illustration of what that less familiar thing, the kingdom of God, is like. And there are certain things that he wants us to learn from that, certain conclusions that he wants us to draw, and he actually gives us the interpretation. In verse 11, he says, For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. So there you have it. This is not about secretly calculating how you can make your way to the top. This isn't about climbing the social ladder. He is not giving you tips on how you can fulfill matters of self-interest. This is a parable that has as its keynote the very opposite, a call to humility, a call to lowliness, to self-abasement. This is Proverbs chapter 25, verses six and seven in illustrated sermonic form. Proverbs 25, verses six and seven say, do not put yourself forward in the king's presence or stand in the place of the great. For it is better to be told, come up here than to be put lower in the presence of a noble. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and everyone who humbles himself will be exalted. When is that going to happen, dear ones? When will that exaltation or humiliation occur? Well, we're talking about the kingdom of God. And here specifically, we're talking about the end of the age, the consummation of the kingdom of God. When the son of man comes in his glory and all the holy angels with him, and he sits on his glorious throne. Those that are honored then are those that humble and deny and abase themselves now. That's what Jesus is saying to us. And of course, Christ himself is our paradigm in this. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not account did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being formed in the likeness, born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, what does Paul say became of that? What became of Christ's willing humiliation? It says, therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every other name. Well, the people of God are those who take up the form of the servant after the pattern of the master do nothing from selfish ambition nothing from selfish ambition or conceit but in humility count others more significant than yourselves god help us in this count others more significant than yourselves with the hope of future exaltation not in this life but in the life that is to come. Christ's promise to us is that he who humbles himself will be exalted. When he returns, we must learn to humble ourselves. How does one come? By humility. It is not something we can produce in ourselves. It is not something that you can come by, by sheer force of will. How does it come? Well, it starts with a A right appraisal of oneself. It begins with an estimation of your own estate that accords with what God says of you in His Word. It begins by acknowledging and confessing of yourself the witness Scripture gives about the condition of mankind. And you can see this from the earliest pages of Scripture. Uh, Genesis, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And so we are those who hear the word of God declared, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and our minds fly not to the condition of other men, but to the state of our own. To our own condition before the living God. You say with Paul, I know that nothing good dwells within me that is within my flesh or with David. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. That is where humility, true humility begins But then it goes on to survey the greatness of Christ, his majesty and perfection. You can't begin to have a right appraisal of yourself without also gazing upon him who knew no sin. And so you take in his worthiness, his preeminence, You marvel at the beauty of his holiness, the glory of his person and work, the greatness of his very being. You stagger at his excellency that he is exalted as head over all and that he should have dealings with you. You take in, for example, the price of, of your redemption. Everything from the condescension of Christ in his incarnation, the lowliness of his birth, the rejection of his very own people, but most of all, the shedding of his blood for the remission of your sins. That he was stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. You bring all of that together and see if the spirit of God does not begin to work true spirit-born humility within your heart. See if you don't come away saying, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the cross takes away all grounds for boasting all ground for pride, all ground for self-exaltation. And it brings us to declare, he must increase. I must decrease. In the economy of God, the way up is down. He who humbles himself will be exalted. If you begin at total Self-abasement, the only place to go is up. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. He who is mighty has done great things for me. I trust there was just a, a sense of astonishment in those words when she said, for me, even for me. His mercy is for me. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He who humbles himself will be exalted. Mark this in your mind as well. He who exalts himself will be humbled. There will be a day of Humiliation. How are you living today? What if you are on the other end of things? What if you're not the guest at the dinner, but you're the host? Well, in the same way that the guests are seen elbowing their way forward, so also does the host look out for number one in this scene You see that in the way that he puts his guest list together. Look at verse 12 again. Jesus said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind." Does Jesus mean that we are to shun our family and friends? That we should never invite them in? No. The emphasis here is on the fact that there is always this temptation working in our hearts to constantly be thinking about what we can get out of the deal. You, you give in order to get. And so you, you, you hobnob with the socially elite you rub shoulders with the upper crust. You're, you're always thinking, what's in it here for me? Jesus counters that mentality. He counters that way of thinking. He says to go out of your way to show self-sacrificial hospitality to those who have no way to pay you back. Consciously seek out those where there's, there's no expectation or even ability to show reciprocity. Romans chapter 12 and verse 16, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Seek them out. Associate with the lowly. In the Old Testament, whenever the Feast of Weeks would roll around, the people of God were, t- were told to rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughter, your male servant. And your female servant, the Levite who is within your towns, the sojourners, the fatherless, and the widow who are among you at the place of the Lord your God will choose to make his name dwell there. Don't neglect to show hospitality to the down and out, to the impoverished, to the social outcasts, to those without families of their own. This is one of the marvelous things about the church of the living God. In it, You find rich and poor, the socially elite, uh, the disenfranchised, the marginalized, those that are at the center of things. But in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of those markers dissolve. The gospel comes in and it flattens all of those distinctions that the world makes. The grace and the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ comes and it declares to us that at root we are all spiritual paupers, Every one of us, we are destitute, we are needy, but to the one who humbles himself under the mighty hand of God, he will at the proper time lift you up. He opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, knowing that you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid, at the resurrection of the just. Notice here that Jesus isn't allergic to the idea of encouraging his people with a prospect of future reward. Proverbs chapter 19 and verse 17 says, whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord and he will repay him for his deed. Matthew chapter 10 and verse 42 And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly, I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. Hebrews chapter 11, the very essence of faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Beloved, we are those who lay up treasure in heaven, It's the prospect of a future, eternal reward that is our hope, not in this life. I want you to see here and impress this upon your hearts that eschatology, the the doctrine of the end times, is something that has actually immense practical bearing on the way that we live today. It's not something to just sit around and debate about. That's all well and good, but what we believe about eternity is to drive how we are to live in the present. And Jesus says that that actually includes your dealings with fellow men. Show gospel hospitality to those who can't repay you with the confidence that you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Now, it's upon hearing that that someone that was seated around that table, pipes up, and he he exclaims, Blessed is everyone who will eat in the kingdom of God. Clearly, he expects to find himself there. And it's as if Jesus follows that by saying, Well, hang on a minute. Do you know for sure that you're going to be there? He's speaking to a man who, in a manner of speaking, takes his salvation for granted. We know that because of how Christ continues. He goes on to describe this great banquet. Listen again to the language in verse 16. A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who had been invited, come for everything is now ready. So you've got the picture. A great banquet, Many invited, everything prepared, all has been provided for. But what happens? But they all alike began to make excuses. One says, well, I've bought a field and I must go out and see it. Kenneth Bailey says, the statement is a bold-faced lie and everyone knows it. No one buys a field in the Middle East without knowing every square foot of it like the palm of his hand. The springs, wells, stone walls, trees, paths, and anticipated rainfall are all well-known long before discussion of the purchase has ever begun. The next one says, well, I've bought five yoke of oxen and I, I go to examine them. Please have me excused. Again, Uh, Bailey says that this would be the equivalent of um, us calling home today and saying, well, honey, I can't make it home for dinner tonight because I've just signed a check for five used cars and I've bought them over the phone and I'm on my way now to the, the used car lot to see if they'll start. Well, finally, I have married a wife, therefore I cannot come. Some see an allusion here in these excuses to Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 5 to 7, where those who have recently purchased a, a new home or planted a vineyard or become betrothed to a wife are given leave from battle to attend to those concerns. They were excused because of the threat of death. Their service out on the battlefield might allow another one to come in and take his home before it had been dedicated or enjoy the, the, the first bounty of fruit or, or even take his wife, their betrothed. But you see the contrast here. We're not talking about war. We're talking about a great feast And so the reference to the passage in Deuteronomy in this context actually serves to accentuate just how trivial their excuses actually are. Now, what I I want to call your attention to, brothers and sisters, with God's help, and this is where this passage really begins to, to hit home, is the nature of their excuses. Brothers and sisters, what sins were these individuals guilty of? No grave transgression is spelled out for us. No scandalous crimes are mentioned here. Just simple preoccupation with the stuff of life. That's what we find. They have duties and commitments and obligations that intrude upon their ability, or so they tell themselves to come, to come to the banqueting feast. In a word, busyness is their excuse busyness the tyranny of the urgent and so they absent themselves saying i cannot come please have me excuse i've got too much on my plate my calendar is too full we might like to think that no other generation has faced the kinds of challenges that we do today Uh, The the, the pace of life, the demands on our time are unlike anything the world has ever seen before. But the scripture really challenges that way of thinking. Here you have a survey of first century agrarian life. And what do you find? Many are taken up with worldly affairs. They're distracted. They're busy. Why? Why? Though The problem doesn't have anything to do with the calendar. It has to do with the heart. The banqueting feast just isn't in keeping with their priorities. They have better things to do. Other things have taken precedence in their lives. The cares of the world have crowded out their concerns for the things of God and even for the life that is to come. They all alike began to make excuses J.C. Ryle says, it is not open profligacy that fills hell. It is excessive attention to things which in themselves are lawful. It is not avowed dislike to the gospel, which is so much to be feared. It is that procrastinating, excuse-making spirit, which is always ready with a reason why Christ cannot be served today. Infidelity and immorality, no doubt, slay their thousands, but decent, plausible, smooth-spoken excuses slay their tens of thousands. In the final analysis, something else was more important. Something else was more important than coming to the feast. Something else had gripped the affections of the heart. And of course, the sad irony here, if you can imagine it, is that those who are invited look upon this occasion of great feasting and celebration and delight and provision and an open invitation to come and partake freely of the bounty of God's provision as just another thing to add to the calendar. Something that in the end wasn't worthy of their time. That's the great tragedy of it all. They beg off, not realizing the joy and the delight that they are turning away from. Are you perhaps guilty of this, beloved? What a great grief you will one day know if you, if you turn aside from God's gracious offer of salvation in the gospel. The invitation has been issued Will you come? It was when the the servant came and he reported all of these things to the master of the house that the master became angry and he said to his servant, go out quickly to the streets and lanes of the city and bring in the poor and crippled and blind and lame and that he did and still there was room. Still there was room to spare and the host was eager to see his, his house filled and his table full. And so what happens? A third round of invitations go out. Go out to the highways and hedges and compel people to come in, that my house, may be filled. Now it's telling that in this third round of invitations, this group of people must not merely be invited, but compelled to come in for these are the ones who knew they had no way to repay they knew they had no way to repay such an invitation in fact social norms practically required them to decline this kind of an invitation from someone of such high social standing it would boggle the mind that the crippled and the poor and the blind and the lame would be included it's almost too good to be true you can't imagine such a thing happening. But this is the nature of the kingdom of God, beloved. This is who our God is. This is the glory of the gospel. This is where the, the good news of the grace of God shines so brightly. We have a picture of a master who delights to have whosoever will come. Feeble of all stripes and ilks, whatever their background, sick and infirm, however unfitting they might appear to be, just come and he will make you fitting. He will make you fit. He will raise you up. He lifts the needy from the ass sheep to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. We are those who simply come. We simply come. We do so with the empty hands of faith. Come to the table. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for that great banqueting feast that you have prepared. God, we praise you for the the great price that was paid to make provision for us and that we might come into your presence and know everlasting fellowship with you. Thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you, Lord, that we have heard the invitation that the spirit and the bride say, come and that we can come and feast without money and without price. Now, Lord, we know that many are called, but few are chosen. And we pray that, that none here would turn aside from the grace that's to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Have, have mercy, Lord, on everyone that we all might be found numbered among your people when your son returns again. Lord, I also pray that we would be found living in light of that, that great and glorious day that we would remember our, our proper station, that we would have humble hearts That in our dealings with one another, uh, in our dealings with those in the world, we would reflect clearly the mercy and compassion of Christ. That we might be a means of grace to one another, a witness to a dying world. Work in our hearts, Lord, to the praise of your glorious grace. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.